Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and lifts you up. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. We're going to turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 25, and I'll be there in a little while, so you have time to look it up. This is your fair warning. Um, I believe that as, as you've heard as we've worshiped this morning, that God wants to restore hope in us. Amen. And here's what happens a lot of times when it comes to hope. What, a lot of times what happens is we tend to place our hope in what we want God to do for us and, and not actually in who God is. Amen. Do you hear the subtle difference? And then when I hope in what I want God to do for me, that that actually can many times lead to great disappointment and disillusionment in my faith. Because sometimes I'm, I'm actually boxing God into something. And God always has bigger and better in store for you and me. Always. I, I, actually, I don't, believe, I don't believe that God answers prayer in a yes or no fashion. I think God answers prayer in a yes or more than you can imagine, fashion. And so sometimes we place our hope in what we want God to do for us, but that sets us up sometimes for disappointment. And so this morning, I believe that God wants to restore us, maybe you specifically, to a right relationship with himself where your hope is in him. He is one worth hoping in. It's like I might not know why he's doing what he's doing. I might not know the reason behind all the stuff that's happening, but I know that he knows what he's doing, and that's enough for me. And I know that he's good. I know that he's the God of happy endings, and so I'm hanging on to that and not just this temporary thing and what's happening. Does that make sense? That's hope. Hope gives us the power to actually endure the temporary trouble in order to attain the permanent treasure. And this 2020, it's a new year. Everybody, there's something about a new year that just is hopeful. And sometimes people get goofy. Sometimes people make predictions and, and resolutions. And, and hey, this morning, if your resolution is that this year you're going to play for the NBA, like, I don't, I don't want to disappoint you, but odds are not in your favor. <laughs> I'm just looking at you. I mean, I hope so for you, just saying. But really, right? But, but you know what? Even if somebody's resolution is that far out there, that outlandish, like, the cool thing about it is at the root of it, there's hope. Because that's kind of what a new year does. No matter how 2019 ended up in your life, there's this sense that 2020 can be better. And uh, we, the other night, Karis and I, we were just home and hanging out, and Carissa was, um, she showed us something that she saw on her phone, and I wanted to share that with you this morning, because this is kind of a new year thing. So we took a screenshot of it. You see this? Somebody born in the year 2020 will see and see the year 3000 when they're 80. That's wild. Yeah, I'm wondering how many of you guys are like, some of you are going, oh, wow, that's true. That's great. 
And then others of you are going, oh, no, 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 no. Listen, I can confidently tell you that someone born in 2020 will not live to see the Y3K. Because they will not be 80 in Y3K. They will be 980 years old in Y3K. You see that? Some of you still have not. Listen, we'll pull out a calculator later on. We'll figure it out. I'll show you how it works. The math does not add up. In the year 2100, someone will be 80 if they're born this year. And that's possible. But the Y3K, not happening. Not happening. But you know what? Regardless of whether or not your math is bad, here's what we know. I can tell you this confidently, that, that whatever it is you're hoping for, trusting for this year, whatever goals you've set, resolutions you've set, whatever it is that you're planning for this year, I can assure you that between now and then, there will be bumps in the road, and that hope is the one thing that will determine whether or not you actually get there. Because that's what hope does. See, the difference between the marriage you have now and the marriage that you want, a lot of bumps. And hope is the thing that will pull you through to the end. Because hope is the thing that gives you the power to endure temporary difficulties in order to gain that more permanent treasure. Hope. Hope is like the Velcro of your life. It keeps your feet stuck to the game so that you're in it, so that you don't bail out midstream. Hope lets you see the end game. and says, I'm playing for the end game and not right now. The other day I was at the gym and running on the treadmill, and the treadmill has this uh, little TV screen on it, and the TV screen has this little remote control on it, and the remote control has a strip of Velcro on the back of it, and it, so it sticks to the body of the treadmill. And... I'm running on the treadmill, and I run, I, I am not a graceful runner. I feel like a pregnant cow when I'm running, just <laughs> And so I'm running on the treadmill only about 30 seconds, and that's all it took, and the Velcro let loose, and this thing landed on the treadmill, and ching, shot out the back at the guy behind me. Like, oh, boy. You know, that your hope is like that Velcro. If your hope is bad, you're going to let loose. If your hope is good, then you'll hang in because you know that these temporary trials, they're just part of the process. And really what I'm waiting for is that over there. Between the promise that God has made and the payout on that promise, there is a series of painful events. And hope is the thing that causes me to hang on through those. That's what we're talking about today. So now, in Hebrews chapter 10, We've been, we started looking at this section of scripture last Sunday, and, uh, and we said that what we're doing is we're preparing for Covenant Sunday coming up on January 26th, and to get us ready for that, we're going to be actually taking a look. There's four statements in Hebrews chapter 10, and we're looking at one statement each Sunday until we get to January 26th. So last Sunday, we looked at the statement, let us draw near to God. That was good, right? Now this morning, I want to look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It's the second let us statement in that section. And it says this, let us hold unswervingly. Actually, why don't we all just read this out loud together, okay? Ready? One, two, three. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let's read that again. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold unswervingly, it says, to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Do you see that, what we talked about earlier, how sometimes we hope in what God wants, what we want God to do for us instead of in who God is? And you notice where our hope is placed in this verse? It's placed in who God is. He who promised is what? Faithful. It's not that I'm hoping that he's going to give me a new car this year, and then I'm disappointed because I don't get a new car. I'm hoping in the fact that God is faithful. And I know he's good, and I know he's strong, and I know he's able, and I might not understand what all's happening right now, but my eyes are on him, and I know he's going to get me through. He's faithful. My hope is in him and not just in what he's doing for me. And he says, we are supposed to hold on to this hope unswervingly. You see that? Why unswervingly? Because, friends, your life is not destroyed suddenly. Your life is destroyed one small swerve at a time. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, oh, I think I'm going to ruin my marriage with an affair today. Sounds like a, that's, that's, my, that's on my to-do list. Nobody does that. It starts with an inappropriate text, an inappropriate glance. It starts with a thought that I'm unsatisfied somehow in my marriage, in my home. Something. One thing leads to another, to another, to another. And then the affair happens. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm going to be addicted to drugs today. No, it starts with gateway. This leads to that, leads to that, leads to this thinking, leads to that. And then the trap is set. You see, nobody wakes up. Our lives are not ruined suddenly. Our lives are destroyed one small swerve at a time. And so this scripture tells us very clearly, let us hold unswervingly onto the hope that we profess. Friends, how many of you think our world needs a few more unswerving people? Our world needs a few more anchors, a few more men and women who say, no, 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 no. I know whom I have believed in, and I'm actually persuaded that he is able. I am unswerving in this commitment. And we hold unswervingly to this hope that we profess. So this word unswervingly and the word profess are two pretty cool words. The first, the word unswervingly. You know, this was written, the book of Hebrews was written initially in the, in the Koine Greek language. And in that language, the word that gets translated unswervingly is actually two words. It's a compound word. And, and it means come down from and arrest. Come down and arrest kind of the idea of what a police officer might do, where a police officer comes from their place of authority, and they enter the street level, and they apprehend the criminal, and they arrest them, and they do not let them go. You and I are supposed to treat hope that way. I grab onto it, I lay hold of it, and I am not letting it go. Unswerving. The hope we profess, I love this word profess, because this comes from a word that means end of discussion. Speak to a conclusion. In other words, I've made up my mind. I, I've, I've wrestled with it, I've thought through it, I've evaluated it, and I am done talking about it. 
You ever reach that point? Done talking about it. Hey, listen, sometimes people spend their whole lives like dancing around Jesus like as the perpetual skeptic, the perpetual doubter, the perpetual question asker. And at some point, friend, you just got to sort of just say this, I'm done talking about it. I'm in. I make my profession. I have evaluated. I have made up my mind. I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not turning back, period. Not talking about it anymore. Do I got anybody in here this morning, New River Church, any of you profess? Will you profess this morning that I am his and he is mine? I am his and he is mine. I know that. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded. And I'm done talking about it. I've made a decision. I've made up my mind. That's what that word profess means. And he says we are to hold unswervingly to that. Listen, we live in a culture that celebrates confusion. It's almost like the more confused you are, well, that's cool. And and like the more unswerving you are, that's not cool. You're like closed-minded. Hey, I'll take closed-minded over confusion any day. See, our world needs a few more unswerving people. Listen, feelings are great. Can I make this? Feelings are wonderful. They just can't run your life. Listen, feelings are like, they're like the salt and pepper shaker on the table of your life. Like they're meant to flavor the meal, but they're not the actual meal. So I like feelings. Feelings are wonderful, but they cannot be in charge of your life. If your feelings are running your life, friends, then you are dooming yourself to a life of anxiety, a life of fear, a life driven by your desires, a life that's unstable and up and down. Why? Have you noticed how frequently your feelings change? You can't run your life on your feelings. Can I give you, this is why scripture tells us, hold unswervingly to the hope you profess. Why? Because there's a lot of days I don't feel like it. Can I get an amen on that one? Can I just keep it honest? There are days I don't feel like following Jesus. And on those days, I hold unswervingly to the hope I profess. Can I let you in on a little secret and keep it real? So my sweetie pie and I have been married 31 plus years, and it's a miracle. But can I tell you something in all honesty? There's been a lot of times in that 31 years that we have not been all that into each other. I'm just being honest with you. Hey, it's not always roses and chocolates. Like, there have been times in that 31 years where we have not even liked each other. And can I just tell you, I'm so thankful that my marriage is not based on feelings, because if my marriage was based on feelings, it would have been over years ago. My marriage is based on something so much stronger and more solid than feelings. See, and listen, and, and parents, I got a word for you moms and dads. Look at my wife and I, we've raised three great kids, and I'm so thankful for our kids. But can I just be honest with you? They're not always great. <laughs> Moms, dads, amens, huh? Okay. Aren't there times you go, is there a return to sender? Like, can we send this one back? Because this one's not working out. I'd like to get another one. A new model, update this one. 
Because there have been times where our kids have complained, our kids have, have whined, our kids have gotten angry with us. Angry with us. <laughs> How's that even possible? Our kids have gotten rebellious, they've disobeyed us. And I'm so thankful in those moments that we've not parented them by our feelings. Because honestly, in those moments, my feelings say, oh, just compromise and cave. Because that's easier. But sometimes you can't do the mom, dad, man. Sometimes you say, nope. I realize it's not always popular to be the parent in this relationship. So, see, you can't, my point is we can't run our lives based on our feelings because they change. And so scripture tells us here, we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. The reason why we need hope is because hope is that thing that actually gives you the power to endure the short-term trouble in order to gain that long-term treasure. Hope is this delayed gratification. It says, I'm just going to stick with it, and I'm going to get through this because I know that is coming. See, without hope, you have no ability to ride through those rough days between here and there. And, and this is really what the whole book of Hebrews is about. If you want to, I would encourage you. The book of Hebrews is a great little book. You can read it this afternoon. It's a short little thing. But you see, the people that were originally reading this were people that were going through a very difficult time. In fact, they were tempted not to necessarily throw away their faith. It's like that wasn't really the temptation. It wasn't to just abandon Jesus. Like that wasn't really what it was about. It was more that they were tempted to compromise in order to make things easier for themselves. Because you know that. When things get tough, sometimes compromise is very attractive because it's like, oh, this will help avoid the conflict. We'll just compromise and and the writer of Hebrews is saying, oh no. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll discover throughout the whole book, threaded throughout are these little challenges that say, don't give up, don't drift away, hang on, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, don't give up your confidence, like repeatedly through the whole book. Because the temptation for you and me when difficulty comes is to compromise. And that is actually a fool's game. That's, unswer that's swervingly. I missed the goal. So here's, you go back to our text in Hebrews chapter 10, and I just want to read this. I don't have it on the screen, but just listen to it so you can hear the heart of the, of the person writing the book of Hebrews. But he's speaking to these people and starting in verse 32. So this is the same, same context where our verse is found. It goes on to say, he tells them, remember those earlier days, those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. You took my house, yay. The confiscation of your property. Because, look at this, how were they able to do that? The writer reminds them, because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. 
And he says in verse 35, Hebrews 10, 35, he says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. So he reminds them of what happened earlier in their walk with Jesus. You remember those tough days? And you see how you came through those tough days? So don't throw away your confidence because it's going to be richly rewarded. That's what hope does. Hope says, I know that the treasure is coming and I'm going to endure this temporary trial to get to that. Philippians 1.6, one of my favorite verses, it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Absolutely. In other words, God is working. He's doing something, and he's going to finish it. God doesn't do half projects, half finished projects. He finishes them. God started something good in your life, and he, impl- he intends to finish it. Do I understand what he's doing at this moment? Mm, not always. But I believe that he's going to complete the work. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. It says, so we fix our eyes. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is what? It's eternal. So I don't, I don't focus on what's immediately before me because that's temporary. Instead, I'm, I'm working for that over there. It's kind of like dieting. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you are on a diet this morning? Hey, see? Really, only a couple of you? You realize half our country's on a diet right now. You get that, right? I mean, it's, it's January. It's only January 12th. Surely you've not given up this soon, right? So anyway, aren't diets fun? Oh, they're good times. We love denying ourselves the goodies. I just re- earlier, I saw a picture of myself, and I was horrified by the picture. And the person said, they tried to comfort me. They said, oh, but just remember, the camera adds 10 pounds. So I asked, well, how many cameras did you use? That's like a lot of cameras, man. I don't know. So, you know, so we're on a diet. And the whole principle, the whole idea behind a diet is that I say no to this muffin right here because me minus 20 pounds is over here. Now, me minus 20 pounds doesn't even exist yet. Me minus 20 pounds is somewhere in the future. So, but I know instinctively that this muffin is somehow connected to that. And so I say no to this muffin in order to get me to that goal. Now, wouldn't it be great if there were immediate results that you could say no to this muffin and 10 pounds just drops right off? Wouldn't that be fantastic? Two muffins, I've hit my goal, done. Wouldn't that, that'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. It doesn't work that way though, does it? But the reverse is also true. If I ate that muffin now, I don't gain 10 pounds immediately. See, so because of that, it might lead us to think that somehow that muffin doesn't matter. But really, you know that it's not just the decision about that muffin. It's that that decision is actually part of a series of decisions that forms the direction of my life. We know that instinctively when it comes to dieting. But you understand it works that way spiritually in your life as well. 
Let me just illustrate it this way. I just have a specific word for some of us that are some of us young, young ones in our midst today. Some of you young ones, you're single. And maybe you've grown up in a Christian family, you've grown up in church your whole life, and you hear the whole, you hear how, you know, you're supposed to be a virgin when you get married. And, and you know, maybe even you've been told or you've gotten the message at least that, hey, if you're not, then the wrath of God is going to fall on you and fire and brimstone and and if it's not the fear of God, maybe it's the fear of your parents. And then, and then at some point, maybe in your young adult life, you have an encounter. You fall. And, and you feel guilty about it because, well, you're supposed to feel guilty about it. You feel bad about it. But you look around and you're like, there's no fire and brimstone. Like, where's the wrath of God? And you start to think, hmm. Maybe I've been lied to by my parents or the church. And so that leads to another encounter. And again, no fire and brimstone, no wrath of God. And you look around and you see culture, and boy, they sure look like they're having a great old time on Tinder. And so you figure, maybe I've been lied to by my Christian parents and by the church because I'm not experiencing the wrath of God here with this behavior. And you can be tempted to think that somehow this is inconsequential then. It must not really matter. But friends, it does. You need to understand that these decisions, that they shape the direction. It's about the direction that your life is going and not this individual decision necessarily. And I can tell you something. You might not believe me now, young friends, but please trust me in this, that the day's gonna come when you are gonna grow to love somebody And I I said grow on purpose. You're not going to fall in love. That's silliness. That's romance novels. That's our culture. Love is not an accident. You don't fall into it. Love is something that we grow into. And so someday you're going to grow in love. You might not believe me now, but you will. You're going to find that person, man. And you're going to love them so much that you're going to be like, I want to actually spend forever with you, babe. And, and you're going to want to give yourself to that person like for the rest of your life because you're going to be so into them. And you're going to want to marry them. And when you do, you're going to want to give them your absolute best because you're just going to be so into them. You'll be like, oh, man, oh, I, I wish I could give you more. I want to give you everything I got. Ah! And I can tell you this, that every encounter you have with anybody else other than that person will cheat you out of the ability to give your best to that person, the one true love. You see how hope gives you the strength to endure the temporary temptations and trials. I give up these present day things in order to pursue that greater thing in the future. Why do we hope? Because we know that the things that we hope for are always better than the things that we grab for. That the treasure I hope for is greater than the trinkets that I grab for in the short term. Do you see that, friends? That's what hope does. Hope says, hang on, hang on. I know it's tough right now, but this is where we're going. In the Bible, there's an example. There's a guy who 
stands out above all the rest as the quintessential example of the guy who like had it all, lost it all, because he completely got caught up in the moment and flushed it all away. And his name is Esau. And his story is found in Genesis chapter 25. And hopefully you're there. We've had plenty of time to look it up. But Genesis chapter 25, while you're looking it up, give you a quick backstory. Esau's a twin. And he's the older of the twins. And his younger brother's name is Jacob. So Esau and Jacob are the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Now Esau, as the older son, is actually stands to receive what's called the birthright. Everybody say birthright. Birthright. Now the birthright is this. The birthright means that Esau was going to inherit a double portion of the inheritance of the estate. Now listen, Isaac and Rebekah were loaded. So Isaac, so, so Esau rather, Esau stood to inherit a large sum of money. Not only that, but Esau also was about to receive the prestige, the prominence, and the power of being the family patriarch, because that's also what the birthright was about. That someday Esau was the heir apparent, and someday he would be the patriarch of the family clan. And so you see what was in front of Esau. Esau had a lot of money in front of him, and he had a lot of power and prestige in front of him. Until this day. Genesis chapter 25, verse 29, reads this. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick! Let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And the parenthetical statement says, that is why he was also called Edom. If you look in the bottom of your Bible, your Bible probably has a footnote. Edom literally means red. So this event gave him the nickname Red. So maybe we could say that Esau was also the first redneck. Maybe. I don't know. He's a biblical redneck. But that's where that comes from right here. Esau named Red for the red stew that he wanted. Jacob replied to Esau, first, sell me your birthright. Now stop right there. Don't you just want to grab a hold of it? Now, don't you think Esau, in this moment, really ought to just do like the big brother thing? And like grab Jacob around the neck, put him in a headlock, give him a noogie, say, oh, shut up, little brother. There's no way I'm giving you my birthright. Beat him up a little. Now give me some soup. Like, that's what you would expect from a big brother to a little brother. And yet, that's not what Esau does at all. Esau says, look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, then got up and left. You see, you got to see how that's written. It's very, it's written in a very um, almost curt way to, to emphasize the real attitude, the mood of what's taking place. You see that? Esau ate, got up, left. And it ends with the epitaph. So Esau despised his birthright. Wow. I hope that was a good bowl of soup. Do you see everything? You understand what Esau gave up. 
You catch that, right? The birthright for a bowl of soup. Do you see what happens when your feelings are allowed to run the show? Because your feelings, listen, you might want to write this down, your feelings will always exaggerate the situation in order to feed their own lust. Your feelings will always exaggerate the situation in order to feed their own lust. It's how feelings operate. Honestly, is Esau really one bowl of soup away from death? I'm pretty sure he's got the strength to be able to argue with his brother. So I think he could wait an hour for a burger. And yet, and yet that's not what happens. In that moment, what's in charge? His feelings, his thirst, his desire, his lust. All he can see is that looks like a good bowl of soup. And he says, forget my birthright. I want the soup. The word despise is an interesting word because Genesis was written in ancient Hebrew and the ancient Hebrew word that gets translated despise is the word baza. Can you guys say baza with me? It's just kind of fun to say. Baza, right? Yeah, baza. Because I like the word because it kind of almost sounds like what it is in a sense. Like I can see Esau, I can hear Esau going, ah, baza, I'm going to die anyway. Give me the soup. It's almost like if you were to maybe put that up into modern vernacular, we might say, ah, screw it. Give me some soup. I'm hungry right now. And the Bible tells us that Esau despised it. He just bizarre his birthright. Friends, this is why hope is so essential. It's why we've got to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Because our Life is not destroyed suddenly. It's destroyed one small swerve at a time. You think it's just a bowl of soup. Oh, but friends, he lost everything over that bowl of soup. Esau despises birthright. Why do we hope? We hope because we know that the joy we wait for is better than the junk we grab for in that moment. We do the same thing, friends. How many times have we been faced with the same decision that Esau was faced by? Where I know that I've got this greater thing, but what's right in front of me is I want to do this right now. This is what feels good right now. Oh, friends, we've got to say, no, I'm done following my feelings. I have decided to actually follow Jesus because he knows what he's doing. Now, you contrast Esau with Moses. Moses is found in Hebrews chapter 11. And we read him in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. We read about Moses, and he's kind of the exact opposite of what Esau did. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, actually, would you just read these two verses out loud with me? They're pretty short, so it's good just to read them. Let's read them out loud. One, two, three. Moses chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of being greater value than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. Read that again. He, dis he regarded disgrace as being more valuable than the treasures of Egypt. Can I ask you, in what world... Is disgrace more valuable than treasure? 
In what world is disgrace more valuable than treasure? I can tell you it's a world that's ruled by hope. That's where it is. In a world that's ruled by hope, I see disgrace as temporary. I see disgrace as something that's passing. I, I see it as just a mere step to get me to something so much greater. Like the, whatever I face disgrace for in this moment is just so small in comparison with what it is that I'm waiting for that I, I face disgrace. It's more valuable than whatever that treasure is. Versus Esau, who's like, oh, I'll take the soup. Forget the disgrace. I want the soup now. All friends, you and I, it couldn't be more clear. Who will we be? Who will we be? Will I follow the way of Esau? Daily, regularly, despising my birthright. Just being sucked in by the whims of my feelings and the confusion of the culture around me. Or will I be like Moses who says, you know, I'll take the disgrace. I'll take the fact that people might not understand why I don't do what they're doing. I'll take that fact and I'll own that because I know that there's something far greater coming down the line. Now, I know some of you guys are, are Bible scholars. And so you're maybe questioning me at this moment. You say, wait a second. Hebrews chapter 11, that's the faith chapter. So Moses, this is not about Moses and hope. This is about Moses and faith. It, Moses was exercising faith, not hope. And hey, that's a good question. Even if you weren't asking it, I'm going to say it to set up my next point. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about hope. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about faith. Hope leads to faith. And faith is nothing more than hope in action. If I go back to my muffin analogy, I know you're all hungry after this. If I go back to the muffin analogy, hope says if I say no to the muffin, that's going to lead to me minus 20 pounds. Faith says I'm actually going to say no to the muffin. Faith is the action that I take in response to the hope. Faith is hope in action. Now, you continue on in Hebrews, and you go to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're given the ultimate example of hope that leads to faith, which is hope in action. And that example is found in Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it opens up, and it says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Amen. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. Where was his joy? Was his joy hanging on the cross? Oh, no, 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 no. The joy was before him. And what enabled him to endure the horror the excruciating pain of the crucifixion was his hope, was that Jesus could see through that and see you and me today. And he would see you and me reconciled to his Father. And that's what gave Jesus the strength to endure that trial of the cross. As horrible as it was, it was still temporary. 
six, seven, eight hours. I mean, it was the worst, worst eight hours in the history of the world, for sure. But it was still temporary. And Jesus saw through that. He endured it for the joy set before him. And the joy was his hope in you and me being reconciled to his father. I want to know this morning, are you reconciled to God? Are you reconciled? I mean, how, how do you get reconciled with God? Two things need to happen. The first step is this. You just need to simply say, it's broken. You need to simply admit, my relationship with God is broken. And I'm not saying that to put you down. Not at all. That's not a, that's not a dig. It's just simply creating a baseline. This is where we start. We start here. All of us do. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that all of us have, have gone astray. So every one of us has a broken relationship with God. That's where we start. And then that leads to the second one, which is, God, would you make me right? Would you make me right with yourself through Jesus? And based on all that Jesus did, I think we can confidently say that he's happy to do that. Can you see that? Jesus, the joy set before him was you being reconciled. So the moment you admit the brokenness and the moment you ask to be made right, you can rest assured that Jesus is more than willing to reconcile you to God. So you can take care of that business right now, my friend, this morning. You can, t- you can do it right now. I want to I address someone else this morning as well here today because, like I said, I believe that God wants to restore hope. And our worship team, I, 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 don't, know where, I don't know where you are, but I'd love to have you come. <laughs> I'm like, where is my sweetie pie? She's missing. So we don't even have Jonathan. You going to hum? Just as in. Okay, here's the thing. You might say, nah, don't do that. <clears throat> you know, so the second person that I want to talk with this morning is this. Second person is this. So, like Esau, you despised your birthright. Okay. Hope says it can be repaired. That's what hope says. Hope says you haven't gone too far gone. You're not too far gone. Hope says it's not, the game's not over yet. Hope says God can reach you. Hope says you can be restored. But you need to be restored. You need to acknowledge, like Esau, you despised your birthright. Like Esau, you traded in The, the, the glory of intimacy with Jesus, you've traded that in for just junk that the world's offering, and you despised it. So just acknowledge that. But know that God is more than willing to restore. He is the God who restores. He is. He's the God who redeems. He's the God, the Bible says he takes, he restores to you the years that the locusts have eaten. That, that you can walk away from God for years and, and man, the locusts just kind of devour, you know, in your life. But you need to know something. God has the ability to restore that if you'll bring it to him. Listen, we serve the God of happy endings. 
Do you receive that? We were serve the God. We serve the God of happy endings. No matter what condition you're in, when God steps into your life, I can assure you that if you allow him to run your life, he's the God of happy endings. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.